Oh, my God. Welcome back to Green Rush Live for Friday afternoon here in Pro Cannabis Media. I'm Jimmy Young, the founder of Pro Cannabis Media. Very proud to have a live phone in Zoom call talk show on the business of cannabis every Friday here at Pro Cannabis Media on all those social media platforms that we're on, like your YouTube, your LinkedIn Live, your Facebook Meta and Twitch. And did I forget one? Yes, Pro Cannabis Media, now streaming 24-7 live on our homepage. So you want to check that one out, too. Uh, Josh Kincaid is with us from uh, the left coast, and uh, an old friend, David Rabinovitz, has joined us in here because he has been the champion for interstate commerce. And before, David, uh, before I pat you on the back, I'm patting you on the back, so see if you can control yourself, because I'd really like to welcome in our media our media guy, uh, Zach Huffman from Grown In. It's a great newsletter. I read it on a regular basis. His beat is the New England area. And and Zach, pleasure to meet you and welcome to Green Rush Live. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How did how did it come about? How did you end up with that gig uh, with Grown In? And and then you can we can give a plug a little bit for uh, the other Grown In newsletters that are out there. Sure. So, uh, well, first I'll start with Grown In itself. Uh, it's I think they're going on like roughly three years now that they've been around. Yep. And for about the first two years of Gronin's existence, it primarily covered the Midwest, yep. uh, you know, Illinois, Michigan, Missouri, and then Ohio. Uh, last fall, they started expanding their coverage and their first kind of step outside of uh, the Midwest was New England. So I live in Massachusetts. So they were looking for a, a you know, reporter who was local and I, and I, I got lucky. <laughs> you know, well, hey. but, and so before then I had, uh, you know, I've written for local papers in the Boston area. Um, I wrote for courthouse news for about five years, which is why like, I have no choice, but to cover this main case. <laughs> right. And then, um, you know, for the last 10 years off and on, I've also written for dig Boston. So, you know, gotcha. alt media is kind of in my wheelhouse. Gotcha. Well, you know, alt media, uh, I always came from traditional media, uh, and now I'm part of the alt media, I guess, because we are just talking about cannabis 24-7 here. Uh, walk us through this ruling by this uh, circuit court and what implications it has, not only for the state of Maine, but perhaps for interstate commerce all over the United States. Well, this, uh, you know, th this ruling starts with Maine's residency requirement. And so Maine, uh, initially, they required that all owners, managers, basically anyone who can make a decision, uh, whatever, it was kind of broadly defined in, in a company that either was providing medical or adult use had to be a resident of Maine. Now, before this current you know, lawsuit that we're talking about, uh, the NGP or Wellness Connection, they had actually sued the state uh, over the adult use residency requirement. And during that, and that was in, in federal court. And during that federal case, the state uh, essentially reached a settlement saying, all right, we're just not gonna enforce the residency requirement for uh, adult use. And can we just drop this case? And that's what happened. And then of course, a couple months later, they move on to the medical market. And so you have the same companies, Wellness Connection, who um, Wellness Connection is a uh, you know locally owned homegrown company in Maine but acreage wants to buy them and so acreage cannot buy them with this residency rule in place so they they sued again and this time you had uh a patient activist group uh get involved 
um, that kind of helped push forward when the state may not have been willing to fight. I mean, that's just speculation. Um, at the federal level, the judge ruled against the state saying that this rule violates the dormant commerce clause of the constitution. And that's kind of what was being appealed. Um, so I don't know how much you've kind of discussed that like aspect of it. Oh yeah. Well, David, um, David, David, yeah. Will, David will debrief because he's the one who found Robert oh, Michaels, yeah. this uh, Vanderbilt professor who wrote a paper about it, got published and David read it because David reads everything. David, yeah, uh, I, I'm sure you have a few questions, some comments about this whole thing. Well, no, I'm going to let Zach keep going because the article that I wrote back in April was a result of two things. It was Zach's coverage on, I believe, April 7th or April 8th of the case that was just decided. He covered the oral arguments and, and I think did a phenomenal job on that. Um, and and uh, and so I'm, I'm going to let Zach keep going. I think he, what I did built upon a lot of what he already had done. So I think I'm going to leave the... I'm going to leave it to the expert here All with right. the foundation. Well, that, he's on the beat. That's for sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Zach. I mean, you know, in, in case you, you couldn't tell, David and I have had several conversations about this topic in the past. So we, we are both very aware of where uh, the other one stands. Um, so, you know, the uh, state lost the federal level. And of course, they appealed with the support of this uh, activist group. Um, sorry, the exact names are, are escaping me. Um, so they appealed to the First Circuit. And then during those oral arguments, it definitely seems like the uh, panel, you know, they argue before at the first circuit, you know, you argue your case before a panel of three judges. And it seemed like for the most part, they were taking the side of the company that this does in fact violate dormant commerce clause. And, and the important distinction is it's easy to kind of look at this and say, oh, well, the commerce, you know, dormant commerce clause is supposed to uh, regulate interstate commerce, you know, over commerce over state borders, that doesn't exist in cannabis because you can't, you know, bring weed over the border. What was argued by, uh, you know, Acreage and uh, Wellness Connection was that it wasn't cannabis that was being transferred over state lines, it was investment dollars. And so that's really what they were arguing is that the investment market for cannabis was being unfairly restricted by this residency requirement and the First Circuit seemed to agree, at least, you know, two out of the, the three panel judges. Josh, I don't want to ignore you. Um, um, if you've got some comments or questions for Zach or David, knock yourself out. I'm actually curious about that area. Was was uh, the legalization process through a ballot measure or was that done through legislation and, and not on a vote? Uh, adult use in Maine was a ballot measure. It was a ballot measure. Okay. It, 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 are you seeing that being a difference? Because with a lot of ballot measures on the West Coast, there's a lot less um, corporate interests, right? Whereas uh, some of these limited license states have a lot of influence from a very small amount of folks. And then that can really kind of change or or dictate on how things are, are being done so are do you have a feeling that there's a lot of lobbyists being pushed behind this or is this still kind of an open free market i mean there's certainly you know lobbyist influence um it, it's kind of hard to tell what the difference is you know looking you know obviously my perspective is very much new england and so i do have a mix of those versions you know like uh or those varieties massachusetts and maine uh were both both legalized adult use through the ballot 
uh, but say Connecticut, uh, Vermont, and Rhode Island did it through the legislature. Uh, it does seem like, for instance, in the case of Connecticut, that the way it's been legalized through the legislature has been a way that like very much benefits a very you know specific set of operators. So you know, I, I guess in theory there is more opportunity when it is ballot based. But at the same time, I mean, at least with Maine, although the legislature, I mean, not the legislature, although the uh, voters legalized it in 2016, it took a while to be legalized because of course the next step is the legislature has to write the rules. And at the time, Maine had a, a governor named Paula Page, who was a um, kind of one of the old school Tea Party candidates who came in in that first wave uh, against Obama, like I think 20, 2010, maybe he got elected. He was very much anti-weed. And so he spent most of his time in the governor's office fighting any efforts from the legislature to fulfill the will of the voters. So it, it took a bit longer for Maine and perhaps that gave more time for the legislature to kind of be more specific in how they're crafting this. But I mean, yeah, sorry. David, from, from your standpoint in the bubble that you're sitting at on the East Coast, are, are you seeing the same thing where uh, the ballot initiatives have maybe less influence um, versus there may be more protectionism is what I'm curious about from uh, the legislative standpoint. If there's lobbyists and, and interested groups, they're not going to want to push for this interstate commerce because they're going to want protectionism. Are you seeing that? Uh, I, I don't know if I'd say I'm seeing that, but I, but obviously the, the MSOs, the larger MSOs have money now and they and if they have money, they're going to hire whatever you want to call it, advisors, attorneys. They're ultimately people who are going to be lobbying on their behalf. Right. Mm -hmm. Versus the grassroots folks who are putting the questions are trying to get a much purer market with a lot more equity in it. Um, so I, I'm not sure how I'd respond to that. I don't I think that by the time that legislation gets passed. The local advocacy groups are in the legislators' ears. Look what just happened in Massachusetts. It took two years, but, but the governor signed a bill that upended our, our regulatory structure, at least as to how municipalities grant the local approval, right? Mm -hmm. And it is much more leaning toward the, what the grassroots folks wanted than um, what the institutional municipalities wanted. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure how to answer your question, but I, I don't know that there's outside outsized influence one way or the other, whether it's um, it's legislatively created or done by, at the ballot box by voter initiative. Hmm. Uh, Zach, I'm, I'm sure you know Shalene Title, the former commissioner, right? Yep. Um, she's obviously concerned what this ruling might be, uh, what effect it might have on set social equity applicants. How's your read on that? I mean, there's certainly a, a possibility that this could have a negative impact on social equity applicants. Uh, I think the important thing to remember, though, with this ruling is this isn't a ruling that's changing anything like from one day to the next. You know, like now that it's been ruled that the Dormant Commerce Clause can regulate weed, it doesn't mean tomorrow you're going to have trafficking over the state border. There's a lot of other dominoes that have to fall. Right. And it's possible this could lead towards. Um, more legal battles against social equity status, but you know those will, they'll have to be initiated. You know, yeah. I, I I think Mikos was was quoted in an article yesterday, and that's what he pointed out: is if you can't restrict out of state parties to on, in favor of in state parties, 
does that mean that a lot of the in-state social equity programs could be challenged on the grounds that in Massachusetts, home delivery and social consumption licenses are exclusively available to social equity folks. And to qualify for social equity, you have to be a mass resident. So that means that an out-of-stater can't get those licenses. I'm not sure how that all falls out. That's um, way above my research grade. Um, and, and frankly, I'm not th that focused on it, really. Right. I don't think, I can't see them saying, well, we're going to cut. First off, a case is going to have to go all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court for the, for the Supreme Court to say, we don't want any more affirmative action type stuff, even in cannabis. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how far they're going to go. Isn't the Supreme Court saying, "Don't mess with, don't, don't, don't put any more cannabis cases in front of us, please"? I yeah, mean, yeah. I mean, other than than Clarence Thomas, yeah, I think that's where they're going. But right, they don't want to. They don't want to have to deal with but, it. And, look, and, this this is not far, Jimmy, from what you've heard out of my mouth for the past year, which is, I don't think that Washington D.C. <laughs> is going to do anything for cannabis cannabis. I don't think they can get out of their own way. Even the people that are pro-cannabis don't understand the market, which is why their bills come out and the industry craps all over them. I mean, right. it, it, they, they, I believe for a while, and I said it back in April, marijuana legalization in the United States is going to get handled by the courts. And when the right case goes to the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas has pretty much already said, I think he's going to come down under the, the 12th Amendment of equal protection and say, you can't allow one group that's got money and more white guys in it to be dealing in cannabis and then go after poor street dealers who are people of color and lock them up for the same thing, right? Not equal protection under the law. You either enforce it and say marijuana is illegal or you say it ain't illegal and you step away from it. Yeah. I mean, and, and that, do you think, again, I just had Morgan Fox on and everybody knows I get very frustrated about the political divide uh, that is in our U.S. Senate right now, because I can't I, the, the we're not governing. They're not governing. They're staying elected. And that is wrong. And now the Supreme Court has become politicized. So there's a there's two two branches right there, guys, that I'm a little concerned about. Right. Or at least one and a half branches. But where where is this going to go, Zach? What, what do you think will be the implications of this? Or is it really almost symbolic that something's wrong here? It is a shot across the bow. The industry is going to uh, glom onto this and saying, look, interstate commerce is coming, whether you guys legalize this or not, it's here. We're going to fight it forever. Where do you think we're going to go with that? I mean, I, I think there's, you know, there's certain, you know, if we're looking at an end game of legalization, right? I feel like there's, there's a number of different paths. You have more and more States that are willing to legalize. That's going to increase it. Uh, that's, that's going to increase the palatability of it as an issue, I think. Um, I don't see a solution in the U.S. Senate anytime soon, uh, but I do also think we're going to a lot of the progress we're going to see will be done through the courts. I mean, there's a there's a lot of creative lawyers and that's really what it takes. Get a creative lawyer, find your case and you can, you know, chip away at a prohibition that way. 
How much of these companies are going to be losing out in the meantime, though? Because anytime you have investors sitting on the sideline waiting for volatility to calm down, waiting for uncertainty to figure itself out, you're you're wasting a lot of time and a lot of opportunities. First mover advantages are moving away. Mm -hmm. Time, you know, time value of money is being uh, diminished, and so. You know, I just talked to an investor earlier today who was talking about these social justice warriors going out there and trying to get everything they want. And I'm all for social equity. I think there's been a lot of uh, damage with the the war on drugs with minorities. But at the same time, the virtual the virtue signaling in in politics with bureaucrats who really don't care except for the the pennies that they earn. It seems like they're just moving from one side to another, one topic to another, talking one side of their mouth, not really doing anything. I don't see action. I just see virtue signaling from bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, you have all of these people who actually need something to move. All of these entrepreneurs, business people, people of color that want to get into the industry. Are we actually going to do something? Are we just going to sit here and, and destroy the uh, potential investment opportunities that these folks have? Josh, Josh, do you think that that's something that needs to be done at the federal level or the state level? I think it needs to be something done at the state level and have the feds just get out of the way. I mean, you got to look the at message. viability. You know, federal's not going to do it. State seems to be wrong in some cases. Yep. Right. Massachusetts just passed uh, uh, the law I was mentioning earlier. They're going to direct, I think it's 15% of the tax revenue into a separate fund where they will provide either grants or loans to social equity applicants who are trying to get into the business. I mean, I think that's going to be huge. I don't. I spoke to a social equity applicant the other day. He was all excited about it. I tried to temper his enthusiasm with, this isn't going to happen until next spring because they're not putting money up. They're saying, take money out of sales tax revenue. And it's mm-hmm. going to take a while before that gets funded um, in any meaningful way. Plus, they got to get the Whatever institution is going to pass this money out, they have to put that together, recruit board members, decide whether they're only funding full operations or they're going to give people exploratory grants or that type of thing. But I I think that's at the state level. I think that's where that's what's going to solve the problem you're referring to of, of getting social equity folks standing up in the business. I think the feds, the feds are only going to be in the way. Mm -hmm. Hey, Zach, I want to ask you about your beat. Um, how, how many of these meetings, uh, New England's a, you know, it's a pretty big territory. Uh, you're traveling all over from Augusta to, to, uh, Boston to Hartford. I mean, uh, how, how do you get around to cover all these States? Well, I, I will say I am, uh, you know, one of the, the fortunate repercussions of, uh, you know, COVID is that, uh, everyone does their meetings remotely. So that's how I'm able to kind of keep up. Um, Hasn't that helped? Wait, wait, hang a second. Hasn't Zoom helped news gathering? I think it has to to some extent. Yeah. Um, It's, you know, in the perfect world, if I could travel all the time, I mean, being in person is always going to be a little better. But this absolutely has increased, uh, you know, access to public meetings. And that aspect has, I think, has been huge. You know, I've been able to cover meetings in, you know, the the meetings I've regularly followed were, you know, I've done the main medical work group meetings, uh, obviously, Mass CCC over in Worcester. Uh, I'm in the South Shore of Massachusetts, so even that would be a little bit of a Vermont meetings I cover, Connecticut Social Equity Council. Um, most of the actual travel I might do is just visiting grow sites, to be honest. Why grow sites and not dispensaries, Zach? Well, I go to dispensaries, oh, okay. but you know, not officially. 
I can't. No, I understand. <laughs> I know. I, 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 I understand. Um, so let me ask you a question about as a media as a media member, how much of your time is on digging and or as opposed to regurgitating what's at these meetings? I mean, it's it's a mix. I mean, covering the meeting is always a good way to capture information that everyone's following. But I spend most of my day digging. I mean, there's only so yeah. many articles I have to write. Um, and that's especially the case now. Uh, you know, Grown In recently kind of shifted its format. For the longest time, we had, or at least for the last year, for the most part, we had separate newsletters for regions. You know, we had a Midwest, New England, and then we had a Mid-Atlantic newsletter. We've kind of done away with that. And now we just have the general Grown In newsletter, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, where between me and Mike Porsche, my, my editor, yeah. we uh, we write more in-depth columns. So, um yeah, I mean, we're not we're not following the day-to-day meetings as much, but yeah, it's a lot of digging, a lot of digging now. What is the best way, Zach, that you're able to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of the industry to either adapt or pivot to stay relevant? I think part of it is keeping, well, one thing that actually really helps us, if you look at our uh, newsletter, is in every edition, we have aggregation of local news. Mm-hmm. So we'll just look at what the news stories are that involve <laughs> cannabis from the last week and our different regions. And honestly, just gathering that kind of keeps me up to speed. You know, mm-hmm. I, I keep my, uh, my eyes on social media. I follow a lot of these meetings to see what the results are. And I think that's very helpful to kind of keep me up to speed. And as long as I always have a uh, new question to ask that, you know, is an easy way to push me forward. Mm-hmm. How much, when you, you mentioned social media, um, are you getting accurate information from social media or are you getting reaction to what, passes at some of these meetings well i mean you get reaction now you know if you look at social media you're not going to get a very you're not always going to get a direct like accurate piece of information from there but for instance you know let's say you know you're writing about a company that got in trouble for say stealing hits from their employees and maybe you go on reddit and you find a couple people who are saying yeah i worked at this company and it was terrible so I reached out to them directly. I got them to prove it to me. They actually showed me uh, reports they filed with the state about the tip theft. And now I've got sources who can give me that side of the story. You know, you take it with a grain of salt, but yeah. Right. No, no, no. It, it, again, as long as you, you're getting to the person who posted it or has an inside of it, mm-hmm. you know, I think and, and in a lot of ways, that has been a good thing for the uh, um the turn away from traditional media. And now we have more alternative sources out there. And, you know, as someone who spent 30 years in newsrooms, I I just can't believe now how easy it is for um, these newsrooms to just report on what's on Twitter. Okay. And I mean, you know, it's a, it's a quit. It's a, um, it's a quote thing. It just, here's a quote and they put it up and that's a news story because it it depends on who it came from. And if it's, you know, related to a news story, they, they put it out there. And uh, I I don't know. I I like the idea of the digging. I like the old days of the phone calls and working the calls and all that. And, uh, and then developing uh, resources and that you can reach out to, you know, face to face or, Yep. Zoom to Zoom, you know, at this point. Um, well, I, got a, I got a question about uh, social media and why cannabis is ideal for influencer marketing. And is it is social media actually worth the blood, sweat and tears? Hmm. I mean, it's 
I, I I'd say from what I understand, it's it's debatable whether it's actually worth it. I mean, there's only so much of a tension, say, I create for myself in terms of what I do on social media. But I do know that uh, you know I'm able to find information that way. I just don't know how effective it is for self promotion. What makes it so ideal for influencers? Because there's new, because there's no like existing uh, dominant folks in there. I mean, what makes it so ideal for influencers? I think it definitely contributes to the uh, success of influencers because like, because there aren't any, you know, because it is new, um, there's this opportunity for lots of folks to kind of go that route, you know? Mm -hmm. David, what's uh, what's some stories that aren't being covered right now that you want to see more of? Oh, gee, that's a great question, Josh. I'm actually not certain on that one. You, you um, sent me uh, an article um, about REITs uh, back in April that are going to be crashing well, down. That's, oh, that's well, that, that was, sure, that was my build on on Zach's article and the reporting. I what uh, that whole The premise of that whole article was this case. And I do recall Jimmy telling me I got shredded by some of the guests he had had on who thought the whole thing was a joke. And lo and behold... Two days ago, that opinion came out of the first district. And what did they quote? They referred, or what did they refer to? Rohrbach or Far, the budget amendment, which was, as I laid out how I see the dominoes falling, that's one of the first dominoes that I think is going to fall. I'm sticking by everything I had in that April 25th article. And to anybody who's watching live, if you're on YouTube, it's in the chat, the link. Just because um, you're early doesn't mean you're wrong, David. That's right. Just right. to get ridiculed more, but that's okay. That's one of the things people don't look at when they uh, look at the cannabis industry is the influence of REITs and real estate value. Yeah. So, if you Massachusetts Massachusetts prices are going down right now, and I, I Aaron Goins, who's been on the show in the past, called me the other day and was telling me he was in a dispensary in Brockton, and I think they had twenty five dollar eighths. And but but if you bought a second eighth, you got it for like fifty percent off, something like that. And yeah, that, that's my math, dispensary. Yeah, <laughs> right. And we we, <laughs> we did the math real quick, and what we determined was they're selling it at retail at about fifteen hundred dollars a pound. Hmm. Right. Start to think about those kind of numbers. Well, that means wholesale. If you're going to live right, you got to be selling it at seven fifty a pound. Prices are coming down. And as they come down, I'm sticking by what I had in that Canary article on cannabis.net that um, the big MSOs are the ones who need to keep the protectionist walls up. They can't afford with their expensive indoor growth facilities to allow cheap West Coast weed to come in. And I'll tell you where that cheap West Coast weed is going. It's going to all the social equity players because those are the folks who didn't have the money to become fully integrated. So you either got it, you grow it in house and it's real expensive and you're competing against some little operator down the street who's bringing it in from the West coast and undercutting you on price. I think it's going to just be a fantastic time to be in the, the lower end of the weed business. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Is it, are we looking at a house of cards? Is it a race to the bottom here? Zach, what do you think? I think to, to some extent, certainly, certainly if you're viewing it as in, in terms of investment opportunities, you know, because when it starts, everyone is, you know, when, when the market starts in a state, everything's exaggerated. And then, you know, people want to return. And that's just not going to happen. Well, yeah, I think the House of Cards is already I, I made a I made a prediction a while ago that um, I said 2022 is going to be the year of musical chairs. And a few months ago, a couple of uh, merger and acquisition guys I know called me up and they said, explain to us what you mean by that. And I said, you're going to start to see the larger MSOs 
like Massachusetts, you're limited to three retail licenses. I said, you're going to see the people who've got three stores in Massachusetts are going to look at the worst store in their portfolio and say, you know what? Let's get rid of that store and let's go get a license in a much better location. And that's exactly what's going on right now. I've, we've seen it a couple of times. The MSOs is trading up their locations. Next year is going to be the year of the undertaker. We're going to start to see in a market like Massachusetts, we're going to start to see people going out of business. There's no doubt in my mind. We've got about total number of retail licenses. I was analyzing this earlier today in the state. This is coincidental, is 420. Out of those 420, 188 of them are provisional licenses. There is just about, it's like 45% of the licenses that are out there are for stores that are not yet open. So there's about 222, 200, no, 232 stores open, I think it is. 242, I think, actually, David. Two, I think yeah, I looked that up. I looked that yeah. up. Really? Because right. the stuff I pulled off the commission yeah, the, this morning. The commission's three months behind, okay, right. when it comes to the public report. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> so I, they had 232, whether it's 232 or 242, right? Yep. It yep. still is. Think about the fact that prices are coming down, right? Dispensaries are offering deals of buy one eighth for 25 and get the second eighth for half price. And we right. only have... 50 odd percent of the stores open that have licenses. Do you, do you understand how crushing that could be to the market if all these other 180 odd licenses actually open up? Right. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and I would also add that, uh, you know, this is this has been covered and grown in by my editor, Mike. I mean, just look at Michigan, you know, with uh, their growing seasons, everything's bottoming out there. Like that's a state that's now starting to see closures. Yep. Right. They started, I think, after yeah. us. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, they and, just went nuts, I guess, with the cultivation licenses. Yeah. yeah. Again, this is why I love doing live shows uh, more than anything else, because we really um, can look at what's going on now and today and then look back at it like David's been doing and saying, see, we talked about that four or five months ago. You know, it, it's just it's a fascinating time. It's why this pro cannabis media group exists. And uh, we're certainly happy to have people on that we can count on like David. And Zach, I tell you what, man, you're welcome here any Friday. You come up with a story you want to push grown in. You're welcome on any one of these shows. All right. Sounds good. How Sounds do like people... go to a commercial break, Jimmy. I'm going to a commercial break. Right. <laughs> all right? I'm going to jump because I got a five o'clock yes. client call that I'm three minutes Who's late. Running this? Is that all right. David you go ahead. David? Go ahead. You can, Well, it's a group effort, actually, Zach. <laughs> um, uh, David, thank you. Great to see you. Likewise. Zach, how do people sign up for Grown In? It's, you just Google it, right? Yeah. Grownin.com. G-R-O-W-N-I-N.com. Or, uh, you know, shoot an email and to Zach, Z-A-C-K, at Grownin.com. I think you and Mike and um, the rest of the team do a great job. It's something it is must reading if you are in this industry, because I think of all of the people that of all those newsletters, I really think you guys turn it around faster than some of these others that are repurposing content from like even two and three years ago. Sometimes I'm seeing now. Yeah. So we like the fresh stuff. Zach Hoffman from Gronin. Thank you, Josh. Thank stick you. around. We've got another journalist coming in from New Jersey. Daniel Loa from Hedy, New Jersey is going to join us next. Don't go away. Green Rush Live continues after this. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is the Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe or don't. And I'm out.
Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your canna confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked. 